Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. I'm Nick, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, Neil is on vacation and so uh, is Sean. Um, so um, I am here with Travis, who I'm super grateful for, and he's behind the bass. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, I just uh, I'm, I feel privileged to land our series on James. This is our final session in James. Uh, next week, Matt and Shannon are going to be with us, and then we have Apprentice Sunday on July 4th, and Alex will be preaching on Apprentice Sunday. Super excited about that. So we got a woo-woo for the woo-wooer. Um, and uh, yeah, just excited to be able to preach through the text. And um, I am starting in James 5. We left off at verse 11. I'm reading out of the ESV if you've got your little journals or you can follow along um, on the TV. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins." Father, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you that as we get to the end of this book, um, that you have already ministered deeply to us through your Holy Spirit. Um, but you're not done. And I want to pray, Spirit of God, uh, that you would help us to do exactly what James encouraged us to do in the beginning chapters, which is to look in the mirror of God's word and be changed by the grace of your Spirit. Amen. So um, we are at the end of a letter to the church. We're expecting something like a greeting, a goodbye, a please tell someone I said hello. But James ends kind of the way he starts. He just kind of drops the mic. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a bunch. It seems to be like a bunch of unrelated um, New Testament proverbs. This is James, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the church of Jerusalem, and he basically just ends it like that. But this morning we'll see that one of, the, one of the things that we can see out of these verses is that they are all communal responsibilities. That James ends his letter to the Messianic church with a sense of this is what you guys collectively need to look like. And, um, and so this morning we're going to look at what it means to be a trustworthy church. We're going to look at what it means to be a spacious church, what it means to be a healing church, and what it means to be a restoring church. James starts and says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or earth. And I 
I remember being busy on a Saturday morning, and uh, I was in a rush, and I, I went to the cupboard, and I opened the cupboard, and one of my children, who shall remain nameless, um, had really stacked the cupboard really well with the glasses, and um, so as I opened the cupboard, one of the glasses just came tumbling down, and so I, I'm actually pretty quick, I know I don't look that quick, but I have ninja-like reflexes, and so I managed to catch the glass in mid-air, but as I caught the glass, I also smashed it against the cupboard and sliced my, my finger from like the top of the finger through to, to the bottom. What's that? Oh, yeah, bad. So, <laughs> so in, in that moment, and the girls were in the lounge, and even the dog was in the lounge, and in that moment, I, I said, oh, thank you, Jesus, for this time that I can learn patience. <laughs> and, and no, I swore. I said, son of a... And I looked around, and everyone had left. <laughs> the dog had even left. I don't think they knew what to do. So I don't, I mean, I don't have a problem with cursing, but at this time, I think my neighbors heard me, you know, in terms of that. This is not the swearing that um, James is talking about. Even though we, we probably shouldn't do that, this is not what he's talking about. He's also not talking about taking God's name in vain with saying maybe Jesus if something goes wrong. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about swearing, I promise, or I swear to do something. It's, it's taking an oath. What, what exactly is he saying? Well, taking oaths had become kind of practice, in, um, especially amongst the, the Jewish nation and cultures, so much so that rabbis had developed like a rule book on how to swear and take oaths. So much so that Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, verse 37, I mean, verse 34 to 37, I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of a great king. And you do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Your children do that. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. Oaths that were made in the name of heaven or oaths that were made by the gold of the temple were not regarded as ultimately binding. And so there was a sense in which you could actually take an oath and not really kind of make an oath. And so basically what, what Jesus is saying and what James is saying is just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now the interesting thing is if a whole section of Scripture... Um, is committed to the idea that you shouldn't take oaths. Well, there was obviously a lot of dishonesty and cheating happening. If people are going around kind of swearing, I promise to do something, what was happening in, in those days, especially to the audience that James is writing to, is people weren't believing each other. The key that we need to come to terms with as a community is that if we are trustworthy, and if our yes is yes and our no is no, it's not only formational. It isn't just... It's just helping us become more like Jesus, but it's also missional. And we know that because Josephus gives a, um, a, a, this is a quote from Josephus when he's talking about Christians, and this is what he says about them. They dispense their anger after a just manner, which means that they were angry, but they dealt with it properly, and they restrain their passion. They are eminent for their fidelity, which means that they are trustworthy and are ministers of peace. 
Whatsoever they say also is firmer than an oath, but swearing is avoided by them, and they esteem it worse than perjury. For they say that he who cannot be believed without swearing by God is already condemned. You know when people say, now to tell you the truth, have you heard people say that? I know most people, it's just become like a saying, but like, has everything else that you've told me not be the, been the truth up until now? Or like, well, Nick, to be honest. Well, were you not honest before? Like, is this, okay, now I'm going to tell you the truth. Now, I know that these have become cultural colloquialisms, but the reality is, is that we should be able to say to someone, I will do this and do it. Or we should be able to say, no, I won't do this and won't do that. Every thought that we have is known by God. That should be enough to help us with our yes being yes and our no being no. Because when someone asks you a question, as you're doing the mental gymnastics in your brain to try and get out of helping them move and say, well, I'm busy that day. I haven't told you what day it is. Um, and you're trying. God already knows what your thoughts are. So even if you can fool someone by the word of your mouth, God already knows those thoughts. So it's probably just safer for us to be trustworthy and allow a yes to be yes and our no to be no. I guess the question I want to ask you is, how would people describe you from a trustworthy perspective? How would your boss describe you? Is your yes, yes? Is your no, no? How would your family describe you? How would your spouse describe you? When you say, I'll do something or I won't do something, why not? If, if you realize that actually this is, a, this is a problem for you, the question we've got to ask is, why am I not telling the truth? Why am I overcommitting? Why am I doing these things? Because that is what's going to help you with your yes being yes and your no being no. Not just a simple sense of just stop doing it. Are you trustworthy? If all of us are trustworthy and all of our yeses are yes and our noes are no, then people that come into this community will begin to realize that there is something unique, just like what Josephus was saying about the early church. Are we a spacious church? James continues and says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And we need to be a community that has emotional width. We need to be able to invite those that are in pain and those that are rejoicing in a trustworthy and honest space. I mean, Father's Day is a great example of needing to exercise emotional width. Father's Day is a complex day for me, and it'll become much more complex for you because I'm not only dealing with the wounds of my father, I'm also dealing with the wounds that I have inflicted as a natural father and the wounds that I've inflicted as a spiritual father. Early this morning, I was just sitting there needing to find grace because all I was thinking about was the many people that I've let down. So as you come into these environments, we need to be a people that understand that there are people that want to sing and rejoice. And there are people that are battling and suffering. And this is not just in the physical sense. This is in an emotional sense. There, there, are, there are people that have been let down. There are people that have been persecuted. There are, there are people that have been abandoned. Now, how do we do that? Do we just say, okay, this is a no happy day? 
Um, no happiness today. Today is just a sad Sunday. Everyone that is sad will just be, no, we need to be a people of emotional width to be able to invite, like today, to be able to invite people and say, man, my dad was a great dad. I had an amazing father. Karin's dad was an amazing dad. But, but Karin's difficulty right now is that, is that he's becoming a shadow of what he once was because he has Alzheimer's. And so even in one person, there can be this emotional width where I am so glad that I had the dad I had. Like, I can't think of a better dad than Wally, but he's not here anymore. And so we need to be able to have that kind of emotional width. We need to be able to pray for and with each other. We need to be able to pray for wisdom for each other. We need to be able to be honest. Your doubt and your pain and your anger does not diminish the nature and character of God. If you, like the psalmist, are in that place where you're saying, God, and you're shaking your fist, he can take it. Because your honesty can lead you to two things. It can lead you to a more honest, trustworthy connection with God, or it can lead you to the beginning of bitterness. That's why we pray with each other. That's why we sing with each other. That's why we confess to one another so people can help us understand what the difference is. That's why singing worship is so important. Because in a congregation like this, there are people that are rejoicing and there are people that are wounded. And when we hear people and when we know one another, and I've said this before, when we know someone else's circumstance and we see them lost in affection and joy for Jesus, it does something in our hearts. We also sing the truths of God when we are in a place where we can't actually speak them. So if you're happy, don't tone it down but provide space for others and know that there are others that are not. But if you're sad, don't rob others that are in a place of joy and cheerfulness to be able to express that to God. I guess the challenge for us as a community is whether we view these raw, honest um, kind of emotions as a lack of faith. Or you can't tell God you're angry. You can't tell God you're sad because, you know, we, we are children of God. We've been rescued. Everything should be, should be better. Are we the kind of people that look at those darker emotions with a sense of, oh, you just lack faith? Well, the opposite is also true, and this is what I've found actually more recently, that unless you have a dark emotion, um, unless there is a sense of um, kind of real struggle with God, then you're not being honest with yourself. And people are suspicious of someone who's happy. Like if someone is happy, they're obviously not very deep, you know. So what we've got to understand is no. If someone is rejoicing, then rejoice with them. If someone is weeping, then weep with them. And at the same time, what we're able to do is draw alongside them and understand what they're going through so that we can pray more effectively for them. James encourages us to be a healing church. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Now, oil in those days was used as a natural remedy. 
They didn't have ibuprofen in those days. They didn't have a whole lot of the stuff that we had. So, so oil was actually used in its medicinal form. We know that uh, because when Jesus told the parable of the Samaritan, he found the Samaritan, and what he did was he poured oil on the man's wounds. Uh, it was expensive. This is not really the context that James is talking about. Because there is a difference between being anointed by oil and between all oil being poured on you. Now, how many of you guys have heard of the oil mafia, right? Right, the essential oil mafia, right? Then those people are scary, right? Okay, now why? Because there isn't an oil that can't cure everything, right? Now, I know if you're here and you sell those essential oils, you're like, well, that's because you haven't tried mine, okay? Now, now, we have something in our house, and it's called Zambuck, right? Now, it's not actually an essential oil. I guess it kind of is when you warm it in your hand, but this is Karin's cure-all for everything, right? Have you been bitten by a mosquito? Put Zambuck on it. You got a cut? Put Zambuck on it. You're feeling depressed? Put Zambuck on it. You're dealing with anxiety? Put Zambuck on it, right? So it's like the oil thing. I'd be like, I would handle the oil thing a little easier if it didn't cure everything. If there, wasn't, if there was just one thing, if people could be honest for me and say, no, you can't use oil for that. You, you know, it's that, no, no. You broke your bone, you're going to have to go to a doctor. <laughs> and it's like, no, I fell off a cliff. I've got an oil for that, you know. <laughs> Some of you know that, that I have trouble sleeping. And, uh, and so someone gave me essential oils to try. And, you know, I didn't know this person very well. So I'm like, oh, thank you very much, you know. And... Um, and I just left it there, and, uh, and Jacqueline said to me, well, have you tried it yet? And I'm like, I'm not going to try it. <laughs> Put essential oils on my big toes so I can go to sleep like that. <laughs> now, why on the toe? Can someone explain that to me? You know what I mean? I guess it has to do with reflexology, but anyway. So then she says to me, well, you obviously don't want to sleep that bad. And I'm like, okay, well, let me try this. So here I am. I'm like, I'm actually embarrassed about this. I'm sitting there getting this piece of oil, rubbing it on my toe, looking around to see if anyone, like who's going to see me? I'm in my bedroom. I'm so embarrassed. I'm looking around. Anyone can see me. So I'm sure you want to know what happened, right? Yeah. I put the oil on. I didn't sleep and I smelled like a salad. That's what, <laughs> that's what happened, you know? This is not what James is talking about. He's not talking about the cure-all essential oil program. Um, he's talking about the idea that if you're sick, you call for the elders of the church and they anoint you with oil. What it is, is, is calling the elders of the church is in itself an act of faith. Because what you're saying is, I am sick and I need someone to pray for me. And I need someone to anoint me with oil. And in, the, in those days, and even now, we anoint people with oil. And, and getting better is not in the actual chemical makeup of the oil. Because James says it's the prayer of faith. That makes you well. So why do we bring the elders of the church into this? Because didn't Jesus say that any of us can pray for someone and they can be healed? Didn't Jesus say, I give you all authority to pray for someone and they will be healed? Well, my, my reading of this is this. The reason why the elders of the church were called was to see if there was a connection between sin and sickness. Because, because James is talking about the fact that there could be a connection between sin and sickness. And when we call the elders of the church, there's a sense of the collective wisdom and prayer of actually saying, is this just a sickness 
Or is there something else that we need to pray into so that you can be completely healed? Does that make sense? Now, this is dangerous because now what we're saying is, uh, Nick, are you saying that any kind of sickness is because of sin that I've committed? No, that, that is not the case. We live in a broken world. And re- remember when I preached about Job, all of his friends were saying, well, this is happening because you must have done something wrong. No, it isn't an automatic connection, but there can be a connection. And in the Jewish faith, there was always this sense. That's why Job's friends said to him, no, you must have done something. There was always a causal relationship between sickness and sin. In the preceding chapters of James, there's a lot of sin. In the preceding chapters of James, there's much opportunity to repent. There's favoritism, there's exploitation, anger, bitterness, envy, pride. There's a whole lot of things that James is saying. Guys, these things are present and you need to watch out for them. What I will say this morning is there can be a connection between sin and sickness. But how, Nick? Well, hidden sin and suppressing sin is something that brings a lot of mental, spiritual, and emotional energy. And we know that when we're under tremendous stress and anxiety, mentally and emotionally and spiritually, what it does is it can affect our bodies. And so there is a causal relationship physiologically between how we are responding to life and especially if there are secrets and shame and guilt that you're dealing with that you haven't repented from, it can definitely affect you. I'm saying this not as a legalistic accusatory statement. I'm saying this to help us understand that we are integrated human beings. That our soul's condition is the outcome of how our bodies, our minds, our emotions, and our spirits interact with each other. And so the idea that James is saying is, if any of you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church, and we're going to pray. And we're going to ask God for wisdom. We're going to ask God for wisdom to understand what kind of illness this is. We're going to ask God for wisdom to see if there's any kind of connection that we're going to pray for. We're going to, we're going to ask, is there anything you need to confess? Now, some of you may, may remember Guthrie. Who remembers Guthrie? He's the British drummer, right? Um, who always looked like he was in pain when he was playing drums. You know? um, so, um, love Guthrie. They're doing well in where? Corn? Not where are they? I don't know. Some pirate place. Uh, Penzance. There we go. Um, and um, no, it's a legit place. So, yeah. Um, but, but many of you will know, well, those of you that remember Guthrie, those of you that don't, Guthrie was a super easygoing guy. Like, he wouldn't get upset, he wouldn't get angry, he wouldn't do any of those things. And I remember uh, he had a problem with his wrist, and obviously it was, it was bugging him because he was a drummer. And he went for prayer, and the, and the lady um, that was praying for him actually had a word of knowledge. And a word of knowledge is when the Holy Spirit tells you something that you couldn't otherwise have known naturally. Um, and she says to him, uh, are you struggling with unforgiveness and anger? And like, if you said to someone with my personality traits, are you struggling with unforgiveness and anger? That, that would be like a, well, duh, you know, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, uh-huh. But when you say to Guthrie, like the most easygoing, chilled guy, like, are you struggling with unforgiveness and anger? And then he said, actually, I am. Like, for the longest time, I'm holding unforgiveness against this person. She says, you know what, I'm going I'm to pray for your wrist, and I'm also, I'm going to pray for you to, to release that. 
well, his wrist was healed and he also was released from the sense of unforgiveness. Now, I'm not saying that the two were connected. But what I am saying is that oftentimes our bodies are a marker of what's going on in our minds and our emotions and our spirits. Now, I have back pain. I know that it is not necessarily connected to anything, but I can tell you this. When I'm super stressed out, I hold stress in my back. Um, and so what it does to me is I go to God, and I, obviously I say to him, God, help me with this, but I also ask this question. God, what am I stressed about? What is going on? What's happening? What do I feel out of control about? And so can we see this idea that there's this holistic approach that we need to um, kind of engage when it comes to healing? So I'm going to quickly speak on... Um, Sorry, I'm saying quickly because I'm looking at Jeremy, and he said he thinks pastors should have a shot clock. And if they don't make their point in 24 seconds, the buzzer goes off, you know? So here we go, Jeremy, 24 seconds, right? Um, there's four real perspectives that we're dealing with on, on physical healing. And in Mercy Commons, we believe in physical healing. But let me tell you what those four are. Number one, healing is purely natural. Um, it, is, it is just common grace. Um, there are doctors and nurses, and we are privileged enough to live in a time where healing comes through those avenues. Now, whether we accept the fact that God has given them common grace or not, that's irrelevant. Healing comes through doctors, nurses, technology, and science. Um, number two, healing is possible but extraordinary. So miracles are the exception, not the norm. Like back in the day, when kind of God was trying to get his team together, he needed to do a whole lot of impressive stuff. He doesn't need to do that anymore, so those don't happen. Basically, the idea is that we look at all sickness as a trial, and it's simply an opportunity for Christ to be formed in you. What we need to do when we are sick is not ask God necessarily for healing, but ask God, God, what are you doing so that I can join you in that. We're not to ask for an escape for the healing. We just need to say, Jesus, help me so that, this can, so that you can be more formed in me. Now, this is partly true. It's not the whole truth. challenge with this is that we lean too heavily on God's sovereignty. And we're saying, okay, God, kind of whatever you want. But it robs us of what I call the audacious widow's faith who keeps knocking on the door until she gets what she wants from a judge that she knows is not a good man. And, and, and the counter is that we keep knocking on the door of a father that we know is a good father. When Karen and I, when we were on our sabbatical, we went to visit a number of churches, and we specifically went outside of our culture and to visit different churches. And, um, and we went to a, a church which which is number three, which is healing always takes place if you have enough faith because the kingdom has come. And, and, and we know that that isn't true, but, but Karen left and said, man, if I get sick, I'm coming here. <laughs> These people know how to bang on that door with audacious faith. And the challenge with number three is, that, is, is saying that all sickness can be healed if there's enough faith is this idea of kingdom now theology. But what it does is it puts so much pressure on the person praying for someone to be healed. It puts so much pressure on the person praying or, or receiving that healing. 
but we know that there's a connection. We know biblically that, that even James tells us, don't be double-minded. If you don't believe you're going to receive something, don't be double-minded, you're not going to receive it. We know that when Jesus went to heal someone, he only took Peter, James, and John in with them, and he pushed the other guys out that, that didn't believe them. So there is, there is a connection. But it isn't that God will always heal if there is enough faith. Now, this kind of idea damages the person that we're praying for, damages uh, the person that's praying, the person that's receiving prayer, and it's overly dependent on our works. We've got to pray harder. We've got to pray longer. We've got to fast. And I'm not saying that those things aren't necessarily true. But I remember a young girl coming to me, and she said to me, Nick, is God not healing me because I don't have enough faith? How do you answer a question like that? I said, well, where did you hear that? She said, well, someone prayed for me and said, well, if I had enough faith, then God would have healed me. Now, not only have you loaded someone that is already sick and doesn't understand why they're sick and needs to be better, but now you've added guilt to the equation. You know, when someone's lost their child or is dying of cancer, the way that we pray is we pray fervently and audaciously. But we also pray understanding that we are not God. We also pray understanding that in the big scheme of things, we have no idea what's going on. But we pray in accordance with the nature and character of God. Now, I'm sorry if you've been one of those people that's been caused pain by this kind of response. But we can't allow misuse to lead to disuse of the idea of praying for healing. I mean, even, even for me, I'm sitting here saying, God, I don't want to pray for healing and not pray. I mean, preach on praying for healing and not pray for healing. Because I was sitting there thinking, okay, as I'm, as I'm preaching the sermon, I can make this about spiritual healing, and I can make this about emotional healing, and, and God's like, that is not what this says. I want you to pray for people to be healed because I'm present to heal. But God, what if people don't get healed? Like, are you God? No. What have you been told to do? Pray for one another. So we're going to pray for one another. What we believe is that healing is ordinary and normative, but not automatic. Healing is ordinary and normative, but not automatic. This is what's called the already and not yet, where, where Jesus has inaugurated a kingdom and where we see windows of heaven where people are healed, where miracles do happen, but we don't see the fulfillment of it until Jesus comes again. It, it's a way of increasing our longing and reminding us that this is not our home, but also understanding that in a sense D-Day has happened and that force has landed in France and it is just a matter of time until total victory is achieved. Lewis Meadows says this, in the biblical view, a miracle is a signal that God is, for a moment, and for a special purpose, walking down paths he does not usually walk. A miracle is not a sign that, God, that a God who is usually absent for the moment is present. It is only a sign that God, who is always present in creative power, is working here and now in an unfamiliar style. I have a lot of faith. Um, to pray for people that are struggling with conception, with miscarriages, with those, well, I guess women, 
that are struggling with those things. In, in, in like, I would say, quote, success rate is like 90%. I think I've prayed for so many, many people uh, that have cancer. And there's only one person I know um, that, that has actually been healed. It's actually Priscilla's daughter came to us one day and uh, her dad, Stephanie's, Stephanie's dad, Priscilla's husband, died of breast cancer. Priscilla also had breast cancer. And so Steph came and she, she, she had a lump in her breast and she said, I know what this means. Um, I've, I've spoken to my sister. I know God is in control, um, but I'd like you to pray. And so we prayed. We prayed fervently. And I have to tell you, I was surprised when she called me on Tuesday and she said the doctor had to take multiple scans because he says there was either something wrong with the, with the image or we made a mistake or there's, I'm, I'm actually fine, you know. Now, I can choose to believe that there was a problem with the image, but you know what that does is it reminds me, man, if I pray for 20 people and one person got the touch of I will pray. Because there is an opportunity for God to do something amazing. How many of you are afraid to pray for someone? What am I going to do if nothing happens? How many of you just draw back and, and you're hedging your bets? God, if you will. Now we know. We know God, if you will. Not my will, but yours be done. But rather, the way we should pray is the way that Daniel's friends spoke to the king. God, king, we know that God is able to rescue us from this fire. We know that he can. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to you. That's how we should pray. Sickness, I know that God is greater than you. But even if the sickness is not healed, we will not bow to faithlessness, doubt, and unbelief. How many of you have been disappointed by a lack of physical intervention and it's affected your view of God? Finally, a restoring church. My brothers, if any of you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him, let him know that whoever brings back, whoa, whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now remember, people was, James was writing to people that were double-minded, given to temptation, full of racism, discrimination. They did not exhibit good works. Um, their tongues were foul. They were arrogant, envious, proud, and pursuing luxury. We have a communal responsibility to bring each other back. These are believers. Am I willing to say to someone that is confessing sin, that's not okay, but I forgive you? Jesus forgives you. Let's pray so that you can deal with shame and deal with guilt and we can walk that through. Am I willing to risk a friendship to say, you know what? I think this thing that you're pursuing is a passion that's creating a war within your soul. Let's pray for God to give us wisdom if that's really the case. Am I willing to sit through and, and talk with someone who's had a painful and unfair experience and it's begin to shift their view of who God is? I know it's painful. I know you didn't deserve that. 
but this can't change your view about God? Am I willing to, to sit with someone who is, quote, deconstructing their faith and listen to their pain and listen to their doubts and gently encourage them to not deconstruct their faith without building something back up and to not just deconstruct their faith, but deconstruct the culture that is causing them to wonder about their faith? Am I willing to do that? Band, you can come up. Why, why are we able to do this? What enables us to do this? This sounds overwhelming, right? Like you're, you're saying I've got to be a, a person who's trustworthy. I've got to be a person that has emotional width, that I can, that I can include those that are sad and, and those that are happy. I've got to be a, a person of faith that is able to, to pray for others and, and see them healed. I've got to be a person that is, that is strong, bold, courageous, loving, that is able to go after someone that is wondering and, and bring them to restoration. How are we able to do this? This is my paraphrase of Titus 2, which kind of wraps up the entire book of James. How can we do this? What enables us to do this? It is the grace of God that has been revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And he has bought salvation for all his people. This grace trains us to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. That we shall live in this evil world with wisdom, sound familiar, with righteousness, and with a devotion to God, while we look forward with hope to the wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. He gave his life to free us. gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us and to make us his very own people, totally committed to his good deeds. Jesus is trustworthy. He did what he said he would do. He is doing what he said he would do. And he will return to take us home. Jesus is spacious. He can handle your pain. He can handle your joy. He can handle your anger. And it won't affect the way he views you for one iota. More than the fact that he's spacious is he has, he has personally gone through the sadness, anger, pain, betrayal. More than we could ever know. So he has the spaciousness we need. He's healed us. There are people in this room that have been physically healed by Jesus. But he's also healed us from a spiritual wound. And he's restored us to the Father currently restoring those that wonder, those that fail, those that fall, those that get wounded. He's doing that by His grace. By His grace, we live in this world with wisdom, righteousness, and a devotion to God as we eagerly await the magnificent day when the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will be revealed. Let's worship Him. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.